0: Welcome to this week's episode of the Stephen Perkins podcast. I'm Stephen Perkins. This is my podcast, and your role in this whole thing is you're listening to the show. So, thank you for doing that. Uh, this is the show where I interview up and coming conservative, uh, conservatives in media, politics, business, and this week I am talking to. Julian Adorni. He is a Young Voices advocate and an economic historian. His writing has been featured in a number of publications including National Review, The Federalist, and Fox Nation. This week we talk about an interesting subject that doesn't always get a lot of attention year to year. Social Security, specifically how millennials should be in favor of scrapping Social Security. How Doing that will benefit the millennial generation and generations to come. I really enjoyed this interview because it's different. It's a cool one. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy this interview with Julian Adorney. Julian, thanks so much for coming on the show. How are you today?
1: Thanks for having me, Stephen. I'm I'm doing great.
0: Awesome. Uh, so you have a great article um, out in National Review about Social Security and millennials. Um, probably the the favorite topic for millennials, right? Something we think about all yep. the time. Um, but before we get into that, as we do on this show, I want to learn a little bit about you and your personal background. So let's start from the beginning. Uh, where were you raised? Uh, what kind of things were you interested in as a kid? And, and how did that get become an interest in politics?
1: Well, I was raised in Denver, Um and I think I've always been passionate about politics. Um, I had a, a father who was a public school teacher. Uh, most of my family are very politically engaged. And so it just kind of made sense because politics is so so kind of pervasive to our lives that I just kind of always thought, you know, if this is, this is the best way to make an impact sort of or this is a way to make a, a bigger impact than I could normally. And on top of that, you know, I've always loved to write. Um, it's just absolutely thrilling, you know my Friday night is usually like sitting down with like a research paper and like analyzing it and then writing an article about it. So it just kind of seemed like a natural fit.
0: I love it. I, I relate to that probably too much a Friday <laughs> night being with, with writing and, and stuff like that, but I love it. Um. So, so that's kind of your initial, I guess, start with political involvement, but specifically libertarian politics. Cause I remember for me, it was the 2008 election, uh, yeah. when you had Ron Paul up there and the Libertarian nominee was Bob Barr. The only thing I really remember about him is he had a cool mustache. But I liked what they were saying about politics. For you, what was that journey to libertarianism?
1: Well, like I said, I grew up very liberal. and I still have very liberal ideas about you know helping the poor and trying to make a more fair society for everyone. But in college, I actually took some economics classes. And that really shook me because I started seeing things like deadweight loss and how damaging taxes were and how damaging tariffs were, and I started to rethink my priorities and realized that you know if I'm if I really care about the poor and if I really care about making a more fair society for everyone and if I really care about helping the middle class, I really need to embrace the free market and stop championing all, championing all these ruinous taxes and regulations. So that kind of created ec- economics courses kind of created my shift.
0: That's probably that's probably the route for a lot of libertarians. That kind of makes sense. Um, so, college-wise, where where did you go, and and what was that? What did you study, and what was that involvement like?
1: I went to CU Boulder, um, which is probably one of like the top five most liberal campuses in the U.S. Um, and I studied English and advertising. Um, I was involved with a few groups on campus, but I actually pulled back from that kind of senior year because I really realized that I wanted to want to do this, um, and it was too late to major in poli-sci or anything, and so I just started you know, spending a lot of free time reading and writing and really kind of focused hard on that. So, so it was a lot of fun senior year, but not very social year.
0: I gotcha. So English makes sense, the writing part of it. What was the appeal for advertising?
1: Honestly, I think that the libertarian movement has a problem with marketing. Um, we have incredible ideas. But we're struggling to break into, you know, the five percent of people, um, or to to break into like five in, percent in the polls. Um, and I thought if I really want to help this movement, it makes sense to to kind of focus on something that I naturally enjoy, which is marketing, and then learn how to apply that to help to help ha- um, to help us become stronger at that.
0: I, uh, I hosted an episode of another podcast we have called my Liberty with Caleb Franz uh, libertarian more libertarian leaning than my show um, mm-hmm. and and I talked about some of the challenges that the libertarian movement or the libertarian ideology people who hold it have with outreach and that's yeah. one of them there there's it's just what I would describe as like a low production value to a lot of things that are done mm-hmm. Um I mean, what would you say needs to be done in regards to how libertarians or or maybe even libertarian organizations within politics market the ideas of free markets, free people, free society, things like that?
1: Yeah, um, it's a great question. I think low production values matter um, or improving those matter, but I would go more foundational. I think one of the big problems is that so many libertarians argue from the head and, you know, our idea, of that, our idea of outreach is so often, you know, hey, just sit down and read this 50-page, you know, book by a Nobel Prize-winning economist, and then you'll agree with me. We need to market more from the heart, and we need to talk about how our solutions help the poor and help minorities and help make the world a fairer, better place. And we need to do it without just relying on textbooks and, you know, obscure citations and, you know, um, the very the – very, very very left wing left brain arguments
0: I think. I think you're shocking people by saying that the books aren't working uh, <laughs> but I think the other part of that uh, is you know we have to take it from theory to actual application which is yeah. tough to do when you don't have a lot of political power but like saying how this will actually affect people um, is important. Definitely. How did you get involved with Young Voices as an advocate?
1: Um you know, actually, a friend of mine introduced me to Young Voice's first editor, um, Kathy Reasonwitz, back in 2014. Um, and I just started working working with them. And I absolutely, absolutely love the program. It's been absolutely an incredible way for me to become a better writer and to kind of get more get my voice out there. So I would definitely recommend it to anyone who who wants to um, write or talk about this stuff from Liberty's perspective.
0: So let's talk about one of the things that you wrote recently, um, Social Security. A topic that really, I think, comes up during election years and then cools off unless yeah. something dramatic happens in the news about it. But for the most part, it's kind of a uh, we're going to debate it for maybe one segment of a debate, and then we're going to leave it alone. Mm-hmm. And then another four years, we come back and revisit it. Um, yeah. In your piece, you you talk specifically about Social Security in the context of the millennial generation. Uh, and how there are, they're now saying that I mean the estimates change almost daily. But essentially, it, it, it's running out of money. That the program is running out of money. Um, it is not a stable program. Which shocker, a government program isn't working as as efficiently as we thought. Um, you argue that it's time to phase it out. Why do you why do you see the need for that?
1: Well, chiefly because Social Security was is is mostly a retirement program. It does a couple of other things, but mostly it's a retirement program. And as a retirement program, it's pretty mediocre. And I'll give you an example if you don't mind me going a little bit wonky. Oh, um, yes. So this example is from a very liberal think tank, by the way, the Urban Institute. Um, so this isn't, like, this isn't like you know I'm pull, pulling Cato and we're all just you know making up hypotheticals. Um, I love Cato, but they do. The point is this is a cross-ideological cross thing. If a young woman makes $47,800 per year, over the course of her lifetime until she retires at 65, she'll, she'll pay into the program $466,000. And that includes both her portion of the Social Security tax and her employer's portion because the employer's portion is really taken out of her wages in the form of you know lower wages and lower salary. She pays in $460, $466,000. And she'll receive only about $569,000. Now that may sound like a good rate of growth, but it's actually only about 20% over 40 years, which is insane. You know, in in the if she were to invest that same amount of money per year um, into a private retirement account, she could make a 20% return in four or five years. You know, actually, if she were to invest that money into a typical retirement account, she would net over twice as much, and that translates to a much more comfortable retirement for someone um, in middle class.
0: So, one of the things that was shared on Twitter in response to your article um, was, well, there's the, um, you know, private funds are not always stable, and... Mm -hmm. I believe I saw the response of the long-term investment. The long-term investor is is not that affected by something like 2007, 2008. It's actually, I mean, legitimately, the math works out if you're in it uh, for the long haul. It it, it works out, as you're saying, um, a much better rate of return.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, yes, if you were to sell everything in 2008 or 2009, as many people did, That'd be disastrous, and um, that's one of the traps people fall into. But if you're doing an investment account, you really want to kind of ride out the highs and ride out the lows. And over the course of you know, 30, 40 years, which is the course of a typical retirement account if you start investing in your 20s, you will see an enormous rate of return. Um, it's just a matter of putting it on, on autopilot so that you can ride out the, the drops and still come out ahead.
0: And don't give your assets to people like Bernie Madoff. That would be exactly. another important distinction. Bet your people. Um, yeah. So uh, w- one question that I, you addressed this in the beginning of the article that I, I, I think would be the first question people would have. Um, you, you say that phasing out Social Security would would motivate or push millennials to become better managers, better stewards of their money, specifically the, the investment of it. How would getting rid of a because because what if if the notion is that millennials are bad with money they're not saving money then how would getting rid of a program that helps save and grow that money motivate people to uh, to do better with that
1: yeah it's a great question Um, right now I think lots of people don't save for retirement because they think Social Security will take care of it. and so that, that's a false sense of security, though. So people become responsible when they're given responsibility rather than being coddled. Um, if we have government programs t- to take care of people and to kind of provide this false sense of security, we shouldn't be surprised when people respond to that and, and say, you know, okay, well, if someone else is taking, ca- if someone else is, you know, taking care of me, whether that's a, a true assumption or not, I won't have to take care of myself. If you want people to be responsible, you have to give them conditions and incentives that encourage responsibility, and I think that's what phasing out Social Security would do for my generation.
0: I think the counterargument to that would be: there's a lot of people who, uh, who wouldn't take that responsibility, yeah. and now they're in a very bad place. Um, now I, you know, this is where you have to be careful about the 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 head saying, "Sucks yeah. for them; they should have." you know, done, done better with that management. But then the heart of that, how do we unpack that from the libertarian point of view, uh, the heart of that for people who, who would not adequately prepare?
1: It's a great question. Um, and what I think it's very easy to overestimate how much people won't prepare. Um, a study published in one of the top economic journals suggested that for every, um, for every dollar, of social security benefits people expect to have, they'll save about 60 cents less. And so the, the more people think they can rely on social security, the less they'll rely on themselves. But conversely, the less they think they can rely on social security, the more they'll rely on themselves. And that's kind of in the data. Um, but not everyone's going to do that. And I think that's one case where it can be great to make social security private, um, either privatize it or make it an opt-in program, because that way people who actually want to you know, save their retirement in a private investment account, and the people who want to maximize their um, retirement comfort can do that, and people who know, you know, hey, I'm not responsible enough for with my money. I need this program to help me out. They still have that as kind of a as kind of a safety net. There, it's just not something that's being forced on them.
0: So that that was my next question was your thoughts about either yeah. privatizing or making an optional program for people to go into. I, I rather like that model because it's kind of a, it's, it's a choose your own thing. Whereas right now, if you want to have a private invest a private retirement investment, you're also putting money into social security, even yeah. though you're not like, that's not your main source of retirement funds. Um, so under that proposal, that kind of proposal, you would have the ability to go to one or the other. And I think if, if you look at, you know, we often talk about the choices that are made in a free market. If you see a bigger return on private investments than the government uh, investment yeah. program, ideally, you would be going to that private investment program unless you're just a bit crazy. Um, uh, so what do you think have been some of the big challenges in actually moving towards that system of privatizing it or making it an optional program?
1: Honestly, I think that. When FDR designed the program back in 1935, he tried to make it a system where basically each generation um, each generation, social security is paid for by the generation coming after them. And because of that system, he deliberately designed it that way so that it would be very, very hard to ever abolish. Um, and I think that's kind of one of the big challenges is that you can't really – is that – Politically, it's very tough to make necessary changes to Social Security, um, and I think, I believe President W. Bush try, um, pushed privatization briefly as, as president and just got destroyed for it. They did um, not like him, no. That said, there's a difference between what's politically expedient and what's economically wise. And I think that even if tackling these challenges are hard, we still need to do it for the good of the next generation.
0: So, give the historical. I mean, you've already given a lot of the historical context, but but what was it, the grand vision for the program? Um, it was this retirement thing, but um, is there any other context that you can give as to why it was started? What pressures were involved with with that happening?
1: Sure. Um, so, President FDR passed it during the Great Depression, actually at the height of the Great Depression in 1935, and the program was designed and. For context, you know, during the Great Depression, unemployment was rampant. Um, it was something it varied between, I think, 10 and 25 percent, based on the year, which is our no, numbers that we couldn't really fathom now. Um, and so, FDR won this program as a as kind of a program of social insurance, the idea that we all come together to kind of pay for each other's. Um, to pay for each other when one of us faces uncertainties in life, whether that's unemployment, illness, death of a family member, disability, or old age. Um, it is idea that at some point, you know, something bad is going to happen and we all come together to, to pull through. And I think that's a very noble vision, to be honest. Um, the problem is that that noble vision doesn't translate into an actual effective program. Social Security is perpetually running out of money, faces severe shortages in the medium and long term, and even if it wasn't running out of money, it's still just not a good good retirement account. Um, so I think that noble vision kind of runs up hard against the reality that government programs are very hard to manage
0: well. That's often the case we find ourselves in. So the uh-huh. challenge for me ultimately becomes you have those who are nearing retirement and yeah. they're getting ready to withdraw that money or they're expecting that money to be there. And I think it's safe to say the people nearing retirement um, it's not going bankrupt tomorrow. So th- there's, there's that ability to do that. But then you have people who are not nearing retirement, but they've been investing in this for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've already put in a significant amount of money and they're worried about the solvency of it with a phase out. What, what's the next step? What happens for people who have been putting in that money or, or, or soon to be relying on that?
1: Yeah, um, so I think it's definitely very important to keep our promises to people who are retired and also to keep our promises to people who have been paying into Social Security all their life or even for just a decade or two and do want to return on that. Um, we can't just leave them out to dry. What I propose is that first off, we end the Social Security tax tomorrow. Um, end it completely as a source of funding. But then to pay for people who are already in the program, I think we should dramatically cut spending for the military and dramatically cut spending for the war on drugs because those are two very expensive programs, um, and I think this could get a lot of liberals on board as well. Take that money and use it to pay off our our promises to people who are A, retired, or B, have paid into the program in some way during their life. And that way we we phase out the program, we stop you know, kind of hurting the next generation, hurting millennials, but we also make sure we keep our promises to people who have paid into it.
0: I would end the war on drugs too, so bonus. You, you just you with reducing the military budget. I, I think conservatives are shaking right now. Uh, they're they're very uh, they're very triggered by that. I've said yeah. the same thing. I, not necessarily in the context of social security, but like you can't tell me there's not uh, areas that that we can reprioritize things. Um, exactly. But but no, I think that's a very interesting plan. Um, so, going back to the original context of how we, we set up um, this discussion, this only gets on the national radar every four years about. Yeah. I mean, there there's sometimes that it comes up more often, but for the most part, it's an election issue because the older generations want to hear about it, but it's not really a big priority like healthcare or like the war or, or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we get Social Security, in your view, back on the national radar? And, and what is that formula? I mean, you know, you're not Speaker of the House, so, so you maybe don't have the political formula for it. But, but what is the idea of, of getting it reformed or getting it privatized or phased out?
1: Yeah. Um, in terms of getting it back on the national radar, I think this is one area where, going back to how libertarians can look better market. I think we have to start telling stories about about the people who are victims of Social Security. We have to tell stories about people who are in the middle class and who whose retirement is much worse than it would be if they were allowed to invest in a retirement account. You know, we have to tell stories about people who are paying into the system all their lives and basically suffer that you know twelve point four percent decrease in earnings once you factor in their contribution and their employer's contribution, and talk about what else they could be they could be doing with that money. Um, and just making this kind of a human a human um, story would would help with getting it back on the national radar. In terms of how to privatize it, that's honestly tough. I think it takes a lot of political courage courage to do this. Um, so my solution is basically, you know. Speaker Ryan, fuck up and do the right thing, even if it's unpopular.
0: There's a lot of elderly people in Wisconsin, I don't, I don't or anywhere. I don't, yeah. I don't know, but, um, but ultimately, you know, something has to be done about it, and it's not going oh. to be the most popular. When I think of of our generation of millennials, um, you know, I, I think the stories go a long way in helping that along. Um, but in order to make this issue relevant to them what are some of the things other than the storytelling that we could do to, to communicate, hey, in the future, this is not a wise investment. It's it's not something that's actually gonna yield returns. It could be out of money by the time that we retire. Yeah. Um, something has to be done about it politically pretty soon.
1: Definitely, I think one of the big solutions is to just teach people about about investing, teach people about these private retirement accounts I remember talking to one person a couple years ago, and they were, they were very liberal They were at CU Boulder, and they talked about how Social Security is a miracle program because it gives you more money than you put in. And I thought to myself, this person's never heard of an IRA. This person has no idea what the S&P 500 is or that that's a very regular thing for, for investment accounts. And so I think the more we can educate people about, about investing responsibly in the private market, the more they'll they'll look at these returns of you know an average of, I think, between six and eight percent in the private market, and then they'll look at the Social Security and think this is a Social Security is a paltry return by comparison, and that also by the way will help to ensure that people do start to responsibly invest once Social Security is phased out, so they're not just left high and dry. I think education helps both issues.
0: Awesome. So I, I encourage people to go read. Uh, the article up at National Review. Um, and because uh, I, I think it's really important. I'll put it in the show notes as well, the link to that article so you can check it out. Um, I, I want to end with some final questions, not related to social security, but but just kind of back on the on the personal uh, note. Um, with everything that you do, all the writing and and all the the research and and um, and pondering of these issues, Why do you do it? What's the why behind the work that you're doing?
1: I have a vision for how the world should be. Um, And I think it's a vision most people can get on board with. I want to see a wealthier, much more prosperous world. And I also want to see a world that's a lot more fair. Um, I want to see a world where people don't go to jail for decades for smoking a plant. I want to see a world where people aren't locked out of careers because they have to spend you know, 1,000 hours getting a hair braiding license. Um, and I think right now our current system of government is very successful at protecting entrenched interests at the expense of the disadvantaged. Um, and that's mostly why I'm a libertarian because I really want to see a world where that's that's no longer the case. And people who are disadvantaged, people who are poor, have a much better chance to, to improve their lives.
0: And then another thing I like to ask or about book recommendations. This is always a tough one for people because I ask for one or two books that have influenced you the most. So I know that's challenging. Uh, but what are the one or two books that have, have most influenced the way you think, the way you live? That is tough. Um, the,
1: the biggest one I've read this year is called um, The Great Stagnation by Tyler Cohen. And it really clicked on me because Tyler Cohen talks a lot about how the economy has been stagnating for the past 30, 40 years. Um, median wages have stagnated, things like that. And, I, and I, once I noticed that, I started looking around and seeing all the government programs that were contributing to the stagnation. The One, drugs, which locks millions of people out of the economy every year, or not every year, but overall. Um, and restrictive government regulations that make it extremely hard to start a business or to pursue a career. And I started putting putting pieces together and realizing the government is why our our economy is stagnated, um, so that that's the book that I would most recommend. And that's not not that's necessarily something that Cohen talks a lot about. He's mostly focused on the data of what's going on. But I would absolutely recommend it to help understand our current economy.
0: Some good good things you can draw from that. Um, exactly. And then as far as a book that you would give away to others, what is one that you frequently, I, I, I often ask this question and people are like, I don't actually gift books, but if you were to recommend or to give away one, uh, what is one that you would uh, recommend?
1: You know, I actually have given this one away. Uh, my only copy, unfortunately, it's called Love is the Killer App. And the author is Yahoo's um, chief investment officer, possibly former. form at this point. I read it several years ago. And the reason I recommend that book so much is it's about making the world a better place. And he talks about how we need to kind of reframe how we think away in in business, away from this sort of predatory, you know, I'm in it for me, no one else, and more towards enlightened self-interest where the best way to help myself is to help other people. Um, The best way to close deal with a client is to genuinely have the client's best interest at heart because they can sense that, you know, and because that will help me create better solutions for clients, stuff like that. And so I think the more people who can internalize that worldview, the more wonderful and the more um, beneficial the, the free market will actually be. Um, and I think the more people can can really look at free market as something incredible, that doesn't really need government intervention because we'll be better people, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Can I just say, this is a thought that has come up. Uh, You give a very positive vision of libertarianism. Yeah, And I just wanna wanna thank you for doing that because oftentimes uh, my challenge with a lot of libertarian commentators or writers is that they give a doom and gloom outlook on things. Yeah, um, and so I like that you're talking about it from the context of this isn't about you know me thinking that government is evil and 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 all this stuff. It's about I want people to live better lives, and the way by d- to to make that happen is mm-hmm. for the government to let people live those better lives. So I I, I like the outlook on that.
1: Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, that's. I think it's really important to be positive and focus on how to improve, not just you know not just doom and gloom.
0: Absolutely. Um, so speaking of things that are not always positive, the media, um, yeah. how do you, there's a lot of, no, I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot of noise in the world. Uh, how do you filter out the news that comes in every day? Um, what is your media consumption diet look like? What are some sources that you go to? Things like that.
1: Um, My media consumption diet is I tend to try and avoid the, the more kind of red meat um, newspapers and websites and all TV programs, pretty much, um, except for a couple. And I really focus on, you know, very authoritative sources that I think really think things through. The Atlantic is one of my favorites. Um, the Washington Post is one of my favorites. Um, National Review is, you know, I perpetually love their anti Trump stuff. Um, and they usually have a very solid take. Uh, maybe I'm a little biased there, but I just try and seek out sources that I think are more focused on on information and more focused on deep analysis rather than you know clickbait and here's the latest awful thing Trump or Pelosi or whoever did.
0: Social media wise what what do you because I, I don't get news from Twitter, but I certainly hear people's opinions about it. How would yeah. how, how do you sift through all that? Um,
1: luckily on Facebook and Twitter, I have a
0: pretty diverse stream. So i have my very liberal family
1: and I have a couple, um, a fair amount of libertarian friends and I've got a few conservative friends, um, uh, who are all very politically engaged. So just looking through my news feed, I'll get a good sense of kind of what different opinions are about the current news of the day, which is nice. And then a, a lot of different articles from a, a n- number of different sources that really help with that.
0: Awesome. Um, well, again, I, I will put in the show notes the link to your article. I'm going to put those book suggestions, and then, um, and then we'll have all other all, all sorts of other goodies. Um, I appreciate you coming on to talk about your Social Security uh, uh, article, but also great to, to get to know more about you. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me on, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you one more time to Julian for coming on the show. And thank you to all of you for listening to the show. You can find our other podcast at outsetmagazine.com slash podcast. Uh, you can find Outset at Outset Network on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can find me at Stephen underscore Perkins on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook.com slash Stephen Perkins. And until we talk again next week, take care. God bless.